0: Of it. A father and his son the day after Christmas, his teenage son, anxious to try out their new scuba diving equipment, uh, drowned during a cave dive the Wednesday after Christmas. Uh, as it was told, and it's at a particularly popular diving spot in central Florida, the Wikiwachi, uh Reef. And uh, this, These two men failed to come home, and when they found them, on christmas night uh, they actually it was Christmas day they drowned i 'm sorry the, the Christmas night they actually found the son at sixty seven feet and the father at one hundred and twenty seven feet and The way we understand it is, is that the son may have gotten disoriented, and the father went to look for him. This is not uncommon even for experts. Uh, back in two thousand and twelve, a team of people that were exploring from a, of an underwater diving institute. The underwater research, the Karst Underwater Research Group, had a, a diver uh, pass away in this same underwater cavern. It says in the, that report that during an ascent to the surface, uh, this deceased man became disoriented and took a different path up. He got stuck in a spot where the opening of the rock formation was too small for him to swim through. The, the representative of the diving institute said, it looks peaceful but it can be a very dangerous place. You know, that's the nature of some of life's most exciting things. You know, you you venture out and you skydive. You know, people say, you know, what an exciting, thrilling experience that would be. But if you don't know what you're doing, it all of a sudden becomes very dangerous. Every now and again, I'll hear a story of a bungee cord snapping when somebody jumps off a bridge because they didn't bother to check the bungee cord or they didn't bother to check the length of the bungee cord. What happens oftentimes is these adventures become familiar to us and then we cease to see the great dangers that are contained within them. And the Christian life, while one of joy and love, one full of abundance in the presence of God and joys of walking with people who also know Jesus, it becomes for us something that we are lulled to sleep in. Often many of us fail to recognize the great dangers associated with with walking with Jesus in the world in which we live. We're warned that the Christian life is a spiritually dangerous battle. If you're not familiar with the passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul talks about it, Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are beginning a series here at PRISM for the beginning of this year called The Nuts and Bolts of Church. What we have discovered, what I've discovered, is that many people attend church and don't even really know why. In other words, they don't know the biblical basis for some of the things that they're supposed to do. So they kind of fall in line. And while pastors sometimes appreciate the compliance... Uh, we, we would rather you know exactly what you're thinking. We would rather you know that the Scriptures would compel you and command you to do these things. As well, when we venture out into this study, we're, we're preparing for battle. We're recognizing that what we are up against is, while exciting and new, a church plant full of new vision and life and friendships, if it's done with an attention to mission to see people come to know Jesus, to proclaim the truth of the gospel and the wholeness of God's word, it's one that has to be approached with great humility because anytime you're involved in a gospel kingdom expanding effort, it is a battle royale for the souls of people and a gospel-centered, missionally vibrant church is going to draw the attention of God's enemies. And you say, who those, who are those? And today we very clearly call out that it is Satan. We read it in Matthew 4 that Jesus had his own battle with Satan. This is not a myth. This is not something we've conjured up in our minds and hearts. This is something that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the historical figure, attested to the reality of these things. And for him to have to engage in spiritual battle is really critical because it teaches us that we should expect the same. God's enemies don't like that we would be involved in trying to reach people and pluck them out of his darkness. God's enemies will challenge us. And so we again look to Ephesians 6 and and think, well, what does it mean for us to, to walk in this battle Therefore, the apostle continues in verse 13 of Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith for which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of god so we start our series in the nuts and bolts in the nuts and bolts of church the presumptive question we ask is what does scripture say about the things we do there is a presumption that we would use the guide of scripture to uh, formulate the reason for all of these components of church that we'll look at each week over the next 2 months but before we can do all that we have to ask why scripture You'd think that this wouldn't necessarily need to be done in a Christian church, but anymore churches, a lot of churches that so-call themselves Christian churches, spend very little time walking through, digging in, and or using God's Word as their primary guide for what they do. In this passage, Ephesians 6, the apostle writes that it is the offensive weapon of the church. It is the foundation of all we do. It is the very Word of God, the Bible. And the Scripture is important because it is the sword of the Spirit. According to the Westminster Confession, it's the only rule of faith in practice. You look at Jesus' experience in Matthew 4, his response to Satan in verses 10 and 11, away from me, for it is written. The devil leaves him. The devil flees from the truth of Scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith would claim that all of the 66 books of the Bible are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And yet so many view Scripture differently. Even those who are Christians or would call themselves Christians would view Scripture in a different way than seeing it as the authoritative Word of God on which you would build the entirety of your own life and certainly the life of a new church J.I. Packer great theologian says we approach scripture with minds already formed by the mass of accepted opinions and viewpoints with which we've come into contact in both the church and the world it is easy to be unaware that it has happened it is hard even to begin to realize how profoundly tradition in this sense has molded us Isaiah 40 chapter uh, chapter 40 verse 8 a common benediction in the church, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And I'll give you a really quick example of where this type of embracing of God's word is regularly being challenged and, and unfortunately around here quite a lot because the, we are sort of uh, the center of the universe for deconstructionist thought theologically with the seminary nearby. And one of the ways that oftentimes people will try to get others to lose confidence in the reliability of Scripture is to draw a distinction between the Apostle Paul and what he says in Ephesians 6 and what Jesus would say in the Gospels. You, this, you can refer to it as the red letter phenomenon. The, the Jesus Project often will have a group of Uh, theologians or a group of scholars come together and they will say, let's figure out what Jesus really said. And so they'll pick through the New Testament and they'll see the things that are most non-offensive or the things that they think they could attribute by other sources to Jesus. And, And they basically eliminate or distinguish in the New Testament between the things Jesus says and the things the apostles say. And so when we see Jesus saying, away from me, Satan, for it is written, uh, they would say this is obviously not Jesus for a couple of reasons. One would be you're dealing with a supernatural being, so this was clearly interjected into somebody else's thinking. You could also say that it was not Jesus because uh, Jesus wouldn't have talked about Satan specifically. But let's assume for a second that we could say that the New Testament has certain things that Jesus says and certain things that the apostles say, and we ought to distinguish between the two. Here's the problem. Whoever wrote down Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels were apostles who got their information from Jesus in the first place. Jesus didn't write the New Testament. Jesus didn't write the Gospels. So anything that would be attributed to Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John was actually written by one of the apostles. A handful of them wrote those epistles that you seemingly can't trust either. And so what I'm saying is, If you can't trust what the apostles say in the letters written to the church, you can't trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what Jesus said either. Because they're the ones that heard from Jesus. How else would Matthew have had this encounter with Satan in such detail? Matthew wasn't sitting up on a rock in the desert watching this take place and and jotting down notes. Jesus told him this experience. And when it came time for him to write his encounter with Christ and his gospel, he included this story. Yes, inspired by the Spirit. Yes, guided by the Spirit. But in reality, he is an apostle who heard from Jesus and then saw Jesus resurrected and recounts what Jesus told him. We come to Scripture not simply because we think we can trust it, but because Jesus said he could trust it. And Jesus said this was the means by which he was going to work in our lives. It was going to be one of the great means of grace that we could come to understand who he is and how we're supposed to live in this life. I think most critically, Jesus gives us an example of the importance of knowing the truth of God's word by showing us how to fight the spiritual battle. To do so effectively, we must know and be ready to wield the sword of the Spirit. It is the ambition of PRISM not simply to create a safe haven for believers but to be involved in a spiritual battle to win not only our own hearts to the Lord Jesus but to see people revived in their faith. To see God work in miraculous ways to reach friends of ours who don't know Jesus to in spite of ourselves use our church to be a part of renewing culture so that the people of this world can see Jesus working in our midst. And in order to do this, we've got to be very careful to do all that Scripture directs us to do. And everything we would do, we want to make sure is filtered through Scripture. I liken it to uh, coffee, which I've just recently started drinking. Uh, And I won't go into the reasons why. I'll just say that it took me 48 years to get there, but I'm glad I finally arrived. Anyway, the, and when I make coffee at my house, um, I have to actually put the coffee in a filter. You, know, you grind the beans, you put the dust in the filter, and then, and then you run the hot water through the coffee grounds. Then you get coffee. Scripture for us is the filter. We pick up information and wisdom, and we pick up all sorts of things in our, in our world that is great. All truth is God's truth, and we'll take it wherever we can get it. We'll take wisdom from any source, but what we're going to do is we're going to pass it all through Scripture and filter out anything that doesn't jive with the Word of the living God. So there are a couple of things I want to point out from our passage today. When we look at the the dangers of life, you know, one of the things that they said uh, in response, they published in response to these these deep water canyon drownings was that they, they had some very clear instructions that these divers should follow. And when they skirt these instructions is when disaster usually happens. So the first thing I want to share with you today from Jesus' encounter Jesus encounter with Satan and as a formulating thought for us as we move forward as a young church is that Prism Church must found everything on the Word. Everything we have we should found on the Word. And you can see it in Jesus' experience. He was led by the Spirit, but then he was filtering all the information he was getting through the word of God. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, the understatement of the scriptures. Then the tempter came to him and said, If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written. And this is Jesus' temptation resistance pattern. He is led by the Spirit, which means he's walking in the presence of God. This is his life. But then the the information, the data, the experiences, the trials, the tribulations, the temptations that come his way, his default pattern is I'm going to look to see what the Word of God says. What does God's Word say? So he responds to Satan, and then the devil leaves him. And that means we need, if we're going to fight the spiritual battle individually, if we're going to be a church that moves forward to make a difference for Jesus in our world, we have to be drenched in the Scriptures. At the end of this year, my hope and prayer is that we will have seen God raise up a handful of elders who will govern our church. We'll get into all that next week. But just to say this, the primary characteristic of an elder is somebody who is drenched in the word of God and prayer. Their life is found, and not because they're more holy than you, but because they recognize precisely that they're more broken than anybody else in the world and that they need God's guidance to go about things. In cave diving, there are five rules that they use because what happens oftentimes is they get down in these caves, they get disoriented, and then there's more. It looks like it's like a maze down there. there it looks like you could go out, and, the, of course, just like driving through the forest, every way looks the same. So rule number one is that the diver has to be cave dive certified. Rule number two is that the diver has to run a continuous guideline to the surface Rule number three is they have to observe the thirds air rule. They have to reserve at least two thirds of their starting air supply for exit. Divers must not exceed the maximum depth limits for their level of training. And fifth, divers must use at least three lights. You know, we we quote from the scripture when we were reading today, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In the Psalms, we're told that Jesus himself looked to Scripture. I mean, in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus himself looked to the Psalms and looked to Scripture to guide his steps in every way he would go. This year also happens to be the 10th anniversary of, in our hometown of Tallahassee, Florida, the drowning death of the son of a local minister. And he was with some friends of ours. I knew him. I knew some of the kids that were with him. And to my sadness, I'll tell you that they were drinking. So add on to the dangerous nature of cave diving. Add on to that the foolishness of childhood mistakes. And you realize that when you start working in this world, when you start moving in this world, when you start journeying in this world, you don't know all that you're supposed to know and you have to humbly approach Everything. Psalm 119, 97 through 105, you see it in your bulletin. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth I gain understanding from your precepts therefore I hate every wrong path your, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path my journey as a pastor has taken turns based on my exposure to scripture my continued learning and evaluating and assessing my journey as a christian has been the same i've developed new perspectives on who god is and shifted denominations and places all because as we discover and rediscover what scripture says we our minds are transformed and we begin to understand new and different aspects of of god because we are familiarizing ourselves with the scriptures and in addition to having our own minds and hearts correctly perceive the truth of who God is and what he says. And this is ultimately what's involved in founding everything on the word because when Satan comes to Jesus, he's quoting scripture to him sometimes and twisting it. And if you're not familiar with God's word, you're going to buy the lie. So familiarity with Scripture is so critical in your own assessment of what you think is true. And sadly, there are going to be people that call themselves Christians that are going to feed you information that probably or could be not true. And you're going to have to be responsible before God yourself to filter whether or not that is true. God's evaluation of how you and I, ultimately, His evaluation of how you and I steward the life He's given us will take place next to the answer key of his word. I just finished a semester teaching at Providence Christian College. It's a very small liberal arts college up in North Pasadena, for those of you who don't know what Providence Christian College is. But at the end of every semester, I have to grade finals. And I'm one of those, I'm kind of the good professor, the one you want. I'm easy. I teach speech. So, you know, they love me. None of them come to church here, but they love me. All right, I can tell you that for sure. All right. Now, the reason is because my exams are like multiple choice and fill in the blank, and true-false, you know? And for them, they're like, oh, this is easy. For me as a teacher, it's easy, because I can grab an answer key, and just, <mumbles> I mean, grading papers, rating tests is really easy. When you have essay questions, that's when it chews up your time, because you got to read it, and they really think. And there are times where I go, do I really have to include the essay question at the end? Because it would be much easier for me to just blow through the grading with the answer key. You say, well, you know, when we finish our lives as Christians, we're secure in God. If you're a Christian, you're okay with God. You're not going to be judged eternally. He's not going to punish you for your sins. Jesus has already taken that. But we will have to give an account because he's given you and I great gifts. And the account we will give about what we've done with our lives, the answer key will be what Scripture says, not what others say. So, if you say, How do I know whether or not I have done a great job of serving the Lord? Well, you're not going to use the human wisdom to make that assessment. Human wisdom would tell you that size matters. Jesus says in Mark 10, If you want to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. See, his answer key is different than the world's answer key. You and I have to look at our lives, look at our church, look at whatever we do with the mission that we have, and we have to say, What is the scripture? say about what we're going to do. Not a creed, not a confession, not personal or corporate revelation, all of which has to get filtered through Scripture. And certainly not my conscience or yours, which is malleable as plastic under the heat of trial and temptation. Scripture has to be that. And Jesus' example is that the Word of God leads us into the experience of His Spirit and guides us while we are there. First thing I'll share with you today is that Prism must found everything on the Word. The second thing I'll share with you and final thing I'll share with you is that Prism Church must feed everyone with the Word. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, twisting the scriptures, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. See, he's twisting scripture. Jesus knows scripture, for he spoke the scripture, and Jesus defeats his enemy. So there's an exciting thing here and that man does not live by bread alone. And what we have to offer people, according to the Scriptures, is that we have the love of Christ as presented in Scripture. I don't have a lot of great counsel for you. I personally am not wise enough to guide your life. When we talk about the Word of God being the sword of the Spirit, we're, we're believing that Scripture, that what Jesus did, what the apostles recounted of who Jesus was, that these things are what give us life. They provide life. They are supernatural in their existence. The counsel that any person would give you might be really wise, but it has to be filtered through Scripture. What we have to offer people is the word of life. Jesus says we can't live apart from feeding on God's word. And the Scripture he's referencing is really, it's not by accident. It is the one from De- Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 6 Where Moses is telling the Israelites after they've partied, not really, well, they've miserably disobeyed the Lord and walked around for 40 years in the desert. They've miserably walked this road, and he is saying to them, now it's time for you to recognize that you need the Word of God. They've walked around for 40 years, Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. So you can see the parallel experience of Jesus and the Israelites. And so Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 6, which says, "'Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today "'so that you may live and increase and may enter "'and possess the land promised on oath to your ancestors. "'Remember how the Lord your God "'led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years.'" to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus is actually citing a passage that he knew, embraced, and it was feeding his soul at the moment of trial and temptation. This is kind of sort of where we are This took place in a desert, and you and I oftentimes are facing challenges, and we're thinking, man, I'm starving. And in the desert of our world, our souls are starving for something, and we'll look to lust, we'll look to money, we'll look to power, we'll look to any number of idols, and what we need is the presence of God. Jesus, in the same desert, tempted as we are in every way, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, comes and says, man cannot live by bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are starving for God's word and God's presence. And in addition to that, where the Psalms say in Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In addition to our own soul satisfaction, we cannot do the mission, which is to feed others, unless we ourselves have been fed. This is Jesus' example He is fed on the Word of God. Then, at the conclusion of our passage, in verse 17, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. The only thing that enabled Jesus to go into the world and express and the power of the Spirit to do this is His own dependence willingly on the Holy Spirit and on the Father and with the sword of the Spirit in His hand. And so, we can't go forth to be a... Soul winning, uh, God loving, gospel proclaiming church, unless we're people that are committed to Scripture. And Scripture is ultimately what we have. I have to share a story about our church, real quick, because, and, and I want to say before I do so, I, I do it, I'm going to do it as subtly as I can because it's important for you to know this kind of thing has gone on. And at the same time, I don't want to give information that would make you either feel um, uncomfortable. But there was a, a year or so ago, a couple that had been attending our church, and uh, they had a child. And they came to me, and they asked me, um, we need your help in our relationship. And I said, great, tell me about your relationship. Well, they'd been living together, they weren't married, and they had a child. And I said, well, are you Christians? And they said, no, and so they became Christians. And then they said, okay, give us some advice on how to live our lives. And I said, well, the first advice I'll give you is that I don't have any advice that doesn't come from Scripture. I mean, my job is to tell you what God's Word says. That's my job. Now, I can tell you about how my wife and I function in life, but Scripture says that you should get married, that God wants your child to be raised in an environment where her mom and her dad are uh, under the covenant of the Lord and living in compliance with the Word. They want you to set an example for your child, and uh, they didn't like that very much. They wanted advice, and I said, Scripture does not have any advice on how you can live together apart from Scripture, apart from being married. I, I wish it did, you know, because it would make my life easier. But I can't give you something that God's word doesn't have. And I'm not gonna lie. I, I don't have that much wisdom. God's word is what feeds our souls. God's word is what can guide our lives. And being a gospel centered biblically driven church may mean that there are going to be times, we weren't mean about it. I certainly didn't judge them for their lifestyle and the things they were doing. I just said, if you're looking to me for something that isn't in scripture, I'm not going to be able to help you there. See, we're to feed people the word of the Lord. And it's not because we're better. It's because this is what God's commanded us to do. And we do it humbly, recognizing our own brokenness. I understand, I completely understand the natural resistance to wanting to put myself under the authority of God's word. (laughs) I naturally don't want that either. I've chafed against the scriptures for most of my 48 years. I understand when people say, you know, I'm really looking for kind of a loophole here because I'm like the king of Christian loopholes. I get it. But what we have to recognize is that we have no value to people if we're not willing to distinguish ourselves by saying, We're going to offer you what Scripture says. Now, understanding what Scripture says is an evolutionary process from the standpoint that we're all learning and growing in that. But ultimately, we're saying in our hearts, We want God's Word to be that which people feed on. It means that we have this gospel given to us in the Scriptures. And that's what we're going to offer to this world in which we live. I mentioned earlier that I have friends flying into town this weekend and, and friends from our church that are flying back to town this weekend. I have a friend here today who actually is a private pilot. And this past week I was looking up something and found out that 80% of commercial flight crashes are caused by pilot error. That is not a good thought. I did not want to know that. I also found out, too, that there is a phenomenon where a person can fly into a cloud and not know that they have all of a sudden turned upside down. They come out of the cloud upside down in the air. And, and for me to, me to uh, sufficiently uh, explain this phenomenon to you, I'm going to have to read and that may seem strange to you, but I would invite you to join me. I got this from American Flyers. It's a group of you know, private pilots. And they wrote a piece on how somebody can you... how can they can end up flying upside down as it relates to the absence of flight instrument training. Most problems, they say, related to flight disorientation can be traced to the inner ear. A sensory organ that is the key to our ability to balance when on the ground or to remain oriented in space when we fly. When the sensory outputs of the inner ear, the eyes, are integrated with the appropriate visual, the ears are integrated with the appropriate visual references and spatial orientation cues from our body, there's little chance of disorientation. The problem occurs when the outside visual input is obscure. Now, I'm going to try to physically show you this and what this is all about. Fluid in your inner ear reacts to rate of change, not a sustained change. For example, when you initiate a banking left turn, your inner ear will detect the roll into the turn. If you hold the turn constant, your inner ear will compensate rather quickly, although inaccurately, and sense that it has returned to level flight. So if you look at where my arms are tilted, your head now thinks you're straight up and down because of how your inner ear works. It's balanced you. So you're flying through a cloud because you can't see the horizon. You don't have the visual input. And you're now, your head thinks you're straight up, but you're actually flying this way. The irony is that if you look down at your instrumentation at this stage, it's going to tell you you're tilted to the left. So when you tilt back to the right quickly your insides are telling you that you are now tilted right even though you're level to the horizon. The obvious method to prevent disorientation is an instrument rating. But that rating alone is no automatic guarantee because there's no such thing of knowing how to fly on instruments. You must continue to practice your skills. They say, quote unquote, you are either formally trained and current or you are unqualified. In other words, there's a time where everything in your physical being is telling you that you are level. Everything that you naturally would trust is telling you everything is fine, but it isn't. You would have to trust not your feelings, not your sense, not your wonderfully trained eyes or ears. You'd have to trust something outside of you, which is this instrumentation that would tell you you're not level. You're not level to the skyline. As a church, as individual believers, we may feel that instinctively we sense that we know what we're doing. It may feel right while we're doing it. But our instrumentation is Scripture and often is telling us something very different. And we have a choice. We can trust Scripture or we can trust our own human senses. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There's a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it leads to death. And while I want to sensitively communicate the truths of Scripture, I want us to graciously as a church communicate the truth of Scripture and stand for the truth of Scripture. I want us to embrace the gospel that we humbly fall considerably short of obeying the Scripture and invite others who humbly fall short of obeying the Scriptures to join us in following Jesus. But at no time do I ever want us to say that the Scriptures aren't going to be the final authority for everything that we would do and everything that we would say. A book I've been reading lately by a pastor named Zach Aswine has some incredible things for me. And Zach Aswine says, and I quote, Leaders, therefore, must concern themselves not with controlling outcomes but with doing the right thing in the right way. We are not in control. God is. Ours is to follow Him and trust Him with whatever is unknown to us That's something a know-it-all cannot stand. A guy like me, the biggest problem I have in life is that I want people to perceive me as being all-knowing. I want to be proud. I want people to think I've got my stuff together. I'd like you to look to me as your hero, and I'm not. Jesus is. His word is what provides the joy and the direction for our lives. Our collective job as we work through the next two months together is to say, what does Scripture say about the nuts and bolts of our church? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together and to worship you. But we pray that in the next months as we as a church take some baby steps that you would help us to have an even greater sense.